I can't encourage you to do what I did. Um, as a pastor, I need to make clear that uh, young Rod is a different Rod than I am today. The story comes from uh, several, several years ago. Um, the first one comes from a story when I was, uh, before I was a Christian. At age 21, uh, I went to celebrate my 21st birthday by going to a jazz club. Me and a couple friends went to this jazz club in Fullerton, had a great time. But because the night ended at 1 o'clock, I thought, it's relatively early. Let's do something else. And so uh, I suggested that we drive to, to Las Vegas. Again, pre, pre-Christ right here. I'm, I'm not <laughs> encouraging you to do anything that I just did. But I, I, we, we drove to Las Vegas. In fact, we, we tried to drive to Las Vegas. The four of us made it to the state line. And of course, we pit stopped at what was called Whiskey Pete's. And I thought, you know what? I have 50 bucks. I want to spend this 50 bucks, and I'm going to make it last for hours. It's going to be a great time. You know, this 50 bucks ought to go a long way. I spent, I don't know, 15 minutes, and my money was gone. Uh, all that $50. And, you know, being 21, that, that, that money is a lot of money. It's something that you're, you feel like, oh, man, this is a, I worked hard for this. And I, I worked a lot of hours to get that $50. And so I was disappointed and frustrated that I had basically exhausted my resources in so quick a time frame when my friends were doing really well, really well. And I was confused by that. But nevertheless, I, I, I did cu- put a couple quarters in a slot machine, popped it in, pulled the lever, saw the, the things go, and uh, of course was sadly disappointed walking away empty-handed. Um, I knew at that point I was no longer going to, to have a, a life of gambling or even an enjoyment of gambling. That is an entertainment. I don't get done with this. It's a waste of money. Uh, but then I saw a guy walk up to the slot machine that I pulled and lost on. He puts in a quarter, pulls it, and the, the bells start going. I'm thinking, that's, no, that doesn't make sense. That's my machine. I put money in the machine. I should have won. The, if I just had one more quarter, if I had, 51, or if I had $50.25, I might have done something differently. But I, I look at him, and he defies the odds, right? Now, in my mind, I knew the reality. The house always wins, but this guy comes in, and he pulls a lever, and he has uh, what seems to be a beating of the house moment. He beats the odds. In the Christian life, we have this experience where we expect certain realities to take place. A plus B equals C. Things are supposed to happen. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. If the sun rose in the west and set in the east, we'd be having an off day. We'd understand that something was amiss. And in the Christian life, we see so much where life appears to not make sense. We, we see that wisdom is applied, and yet God, in his infinite wisdom, still allows a, a lot of ano- anomalies to take place, where A plus B doesn't equal C. A plus B equals banana, or A plus B equals, you know, some nonsensical thing that rationally we know doesn't doesn't belong. Cause and effect seems to be reversed. Reaping and sowing seems to be undermined. How do we make sense of all this? I love Ecclesiastes because the Song of Solomon, not Song of Solomon, a different book. Solomon writes this letter, uh, this book of wisdom, rather, to help instruct us on how to understand wisdom's rightful place in life. When things seem not to make sense, when wisdom seems not to prevail, how do we as men of God seek to understand the world around us? And it's really not too hard to think about where this has gone awry. For some of us, what happens uh, when against all the odds, someone rises to the highest level of leadership that doesn't fit, that is not the kind of character that you'd expect? Uh, What happens when you raise your child in the fear and instruction of the Lord, and yet that child still departs? 
departs and walks away from the faith. What happens when you've made wise investments and you've done the right thing, you've calculated the cost and you've, you've invested conservatively and yet the, still, the account still goes into the red? What happens when you train your body hard and you do, you do what, you're, you know, what the Lord says to do? You're a steward of your body and so you feed it right and you exercise it right and you still get cancer or you, you know someone who was young and healthy and yet still died early because of some medical malady. You understand that that even though uh, God gives us wisdom for certain things, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that that wisdom is going to be rewarded with positive outcomes. I've titled the sermon, Wisdom is Still Better. The question is why? Why is then wisdom still better if it doesn't guarantee certain outcomes? And, And if we as men of God oversimplify our relationship with God as being something that is merely a a, a mechanical calculation of A plus B equals C, we're going to be disappointed because often God allows things to not make sense, at least for a period of time. And this next section here, we're going to see the value of wisdom, where it truly benefits us and how it's supposed to operate and function in our lives. And again, it's not a simple calculation. In fact, Ecclesiastes helps us to see that wisdom is kind of complicated. Applying wisdom and utilizing it properly is not necessarily an easy calculation. In fact, it takes wisdom to use wisdom. And we're going to see that here clearly in Ecclesiastes. The first verses we're going to look at are both in Ecclesiastes 9 and 10. Please take a look with me here. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 first and see how this whole account begins, this whole section. Take a look with me, 9.13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it. And so you see the contrast here. I'm trying to highlight that for you. Uh, Solomon is painting a picture of of something obvious, something that should be clear. Uh, You have a small city with a few men. You have a great king with great siege works. Uh, The calculation should be A plus B equals C, right? The king destroys the the land or the king destroys the city, easily conquers it. However, take a look at verse 15. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. Okay, not a king. Not, not particularly high in, in esteem. He's a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. <laughs> but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Okay, what's happening here? The poor wise, the poor wise man delivers the entire city and yet he's not esteemed. He's not honored. He's not given prestige. There's not a, a monument built to him to say, look at this wise man who delivered our city. No, they not only disregard his wisdom, but they altogether reject him. They despise him. They dishonor him. What's happening here? Verse 17, the words of the wise Heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. We'll come back to that, that, that idea uh, in our next point. But skip over to chapter 10, verse 5. In this first account here, you have a, a poor wise man who delivers a city. No one cares. No one likes him anyway. Uh, chapter 10, verse 5. There is an evil. Now, here's the contrast. Here. An, the first one's just an example. Now, verse 5. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. And here's the error. Here's the issue. He says, folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Rich in wisdom, that is. So folly, foolishness in many high places, <clears throat> rulers of the land, the rich, the wise, in, uh, the, the rich in wisdom sit in a low place. 
I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on ground like slaves. In other words, Solomon makes another observation given the fact that he's king and he can, he can see clearly. There are people in the highest forms of leadership who are utter fools. And there are people who are incredibly wise who are yet still lowly and don't have the kind of prestige and class that you would expect them to have. This one doesn't take a whole lot of uh, illustration if we only thought for a second, right? Highest levels of leadership given to people who are altogether foolish, wicked, who don't love the Lord, they hate the Lord. People who are not characterized by the kind of character and integrity that you would expect, but rather people that are contrary to what God says is right and good. Why is that the case? We expect this not to be it. We expect God to bless the, the righteous. We expect God to, to give those who are godly and wise, to give them the positions of honor, to give them the positions of success, and yet that's not what we see. What this tells us then is that wisdom plays a very critical role in the life of the believer. Wisdom is not necessarily what we think it is or what it's not gonna produce what we think it should produce. In fact, point number one, we should remember wisdom's greatest value. There is value in this life. There is blessing in this life for wisdom, but there is a greater value that wisdom possesses. And this is where we have to be critical in our thinking, careful in our thinking, and even wisely think about what wisdom does. Some people treat wisdom like insurance um, when it doesn't function that way most of the time. I, was, uh, I saw this article this week about Choi Palamalu, whose hair, he's a, he's a stiller, strong safety, his hair is insured for $1 million. Do you know that? Troy Pollen's got the hair, he's got long, long, uh, beautiful locks of hair. Bruce Springsteen, his vocal cords are insured for $6 million. Mariah Carey, not to be outdone, her vocal cords are insured for $36 million. They want to go even higher here. David Beckham, uh, the, the, the famous soccer player, his legs are insured for $195 million, which would include his toes, his feet, and I don't know how they snuck this in the contract, but also his good looks. If somehow he lost his good looks, he's still insured. He still has money coming his way. But see, wisdom doesn't work like, like insurance. It doesn't guarantee comprehensive protection. Wisdom does do something. It does have an effect in our lives, but it's not like, it's not like insurance. Let me first contrast for you here. Let me show you what wisdom doesn't do. And I still want to prove to you that wisdom, though it's limited, is still better than folly because that's really, uh, that's, that's really Solomon's point. Wisdom is better than folly even though, even though, Wisdom doesn't guarantee worldly honor. We've already seen that. The, the poor wise man saves a city and yet no one listens to him. He's despised despite the deliverance he provides. And this is all over scripture. Joseph uh, reveals or Joseph interprets dreams for, uh, for two players in the kingdom and only one of them lives. And he tells him, please, when you are steamed back into your place, please tell the king about me. I'm here unjustly. Will you please help me be delivered? And the cupbearer says, absolutely. I'll do it. Thumbs up, buddy. And you know the story. He makes his way back to the king and forgets all about Joseph, at least for several years. Mordecai. Mordecai was, uh, had discovered a plot to murder King Ahasuerus. And so he lets Esther know. Esther tells the king, Mordecai told me. The king follows up and realizes, great, this plot is for real. He takes care of those who plotted his end and forgets Mordecai, at least for the time being. And of course, wisdom incarnate, Jesus himself, who never once sinned, but applied perfectly all of the word of God, all the will of God, was yet despised, forsaken, and even crucified, spat upon, nails, uh, a crown of thorns upon his head, nails through his hands and feet, his body flagellated, 
wisdom incarnate, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, in all of his infinite wisdom is still denied worldly honor, at least for now. And see, in all these stories, what you're noticing here is that temporarily there is a sense in which A plus B equals banana, right? Why is this, why is the ruler, who, why, why is the person who's wise not exalted? Why is the poor man of the city not honored and, and uh, esteemed? Why is Jesus, the Christ, despised and rejected? There's a common theme that pulls a thread, that, that's a common thread between all of these things, and it's that wisdom doesn't necessarily guarantee worldly honor. In fact, men, if you were to pursue godly wisdom right now, you recognize more than ever, perhaps, that it's dangerous to do that. Well, wisdom uh, exercise right now, serving the Lord your God and doing so in a way that pleases him may get you canceled, fired, blacklisted, ejected from social media, have a, a, a false, uh, a fake news a tag placed upon your post because you dare to defy the common consensus about what is perceived to be good and true and beautiful. And you might even be called a racist for being a Christian. And especially if you're a white man, you might be called a racist because you're part of the problem. You do not conform to the perceived wisdom of the culture. And therefore, uh, news outlets like the Atlantic and the Guardian, and of course, New York Times, and all these places, all these places that are the major players are, are now making a concerted effort to undermine what is has used to be perceived as obviously true and right and good. Wisdom now, at least according to the culture, is to reject our heritage and to embrace a whole new model of thinking, a whole new model of perceiving. And so, as, as the Atlantic here says, white Christian America needs a moral awakening. They're not merely saying that your ideas are wrong. They're saying that you're a bad person for embracing biblical Christianity. And of course, they tie in the race card with it, which makes it all more complicated. But nevertheless, my point is this. As you pursue wisdom and you pursue God's wisdom, God's word through God's wisdom, you may not necessarily receive a pat on the back. You may not be honored. Wisdom doesn't guarantee worldly honor. But even more than that, if wisdom doesn't guarantee worldly honor, it certainly doesn't guarantee our worldly success. Well, worldly success comes as a result, you think, of hard work, discipline, you put yourself to the grindstone and you, you, you push hard, and eventually things happen the way that they should happen. Uh, but today, the world is turned upside down. The rich in wisdom are put in low places. Fools are exalted to the highest stations. Our nation's leadership, our state's leadership, are people that you wonder, how did you make it past high school? How, how do you function on a day-to-day -day basis when black is white and white is black, when up is down, left is right, and everything has its polarities reversed? It's almost as if we're living in a dystopian future where, yeah, 1985 predicted it, but how is it possible that we're actually in it? Our leaders are those who, by all accounts, and I don't mean, to, I don't mean this to be a jab, but our leaders are a, biblical, a biblically qualified fool. They're foolish. They deny the Lord's leadership. They deny the Lord's wisdom, and therefore they operate from a place of foolishness. Well, certainly then, wisdom in Scripture doesn't guarantee that we will enjoy worldly success. Think about Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27. You can just jot this down as I read it to you. Paul says this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Well, Paul, you should have acted more wisely, right? You should have been, you should have been wiser. You should have made wiser decisions. Three times I was beaten with rods. Well, maybe the first time you'd have learned a lesson, Paul. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." 
There's Paul's experience. Well, Paul, you should have acted wisely, right? And of course, I'm, I'm joking because Paul was acting wisely. He was wisely risking everything for the sake of Christ, recognizing all, the, all along the time that acting wisely does not guarantee his protection, does not guarantee his honor and his, his success. In fact, Jesus told us if we were to follow him to expect the world to turn against you. One company that knows a little bit about this is Nini's Deli. They were first uh, they were rated number one in Yelp. They were known by all the elitist food blogs. They were exalted to the highest places of honor until the owner of Nini's Deli refused to affirm BLM. And so he, of course, is, is surrounded and effectively a concerted effort to destroy the business is put together by several organizations, different people, putting in on social media saying, we don't want Nini's Deli to even exist on our planet if they will not affirm something as obvious as BLM, Black Lives Matter. And so they began to, together with a, a whole host of the city, tear down the building. And they said, we're going to paint the wall black. If you won't say BLM, if you won't affirm Black Lives Matter. And of course, the owner, let me just make this clear, the owner's a Christian, who said, I have convictions. I can't say that because of what it connotates, but I can say all lives matter. You know, this is the kind of thing that uh, he felt compelled to do. And he's a, he's a Hispanic guy who uh, was saved out of, being, uh, out of a homosexual life. I mean, just the worst story. The worst story turned into a glorious story by the Lord. And he says, I can't say what you want me to say. I can't say the Lord has made us all in his image and therefore all possess value. That wasn't enough. And so they decided, we're going to paint your entire wall black then to make a point. If you want to affirm it, we will make you affirm it. And we will make you bow the knee until either your business is destroyed or you're willing to say what we tell you to say. Not too different from saying Caesar is Lord, right? Say BLM is king in this place. And of course, he refused to bow the knee and so he lost his business. He lost everything. Well, he lost everything in this life. He still has Christ, which is to say he still has everything he actually needs. Nevertheless, his wisdom to obey Christ did not result in his worldly success. And therefore, he now, in fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a documentary about this, which is well worth your 45 minute, I think it's a 50 minute documentary on YouTube called Paint the Wall Black. It tells his entire story. Say, worldly success and honor denied. But then what? Why pursue wisdom if all we're gonna say is it doesn't guarantee worldly honor, doesn't guarantee worldly success. What value then is wisdom? Well, I wanna point out to you what you might've missed. In verses 13 through 18, Solomon goes out of his way to say wisdom is better. Look, it may not be that the, the poor man is exalted and, and esteemed, but still wisdom is better. Wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Um, <clears throat> wise, wise words heard in quiet are better than the shouting. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Okay, so what gives wisdom its value? And for this, we have to not only look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which we will do, but we have to look at the broader scope of scripture and say, what value and function does wisdom play in the life of the believer? Well, first, let me make this one point here. Wisdom is valuable. It does have value because of what it produces in us ultimately. It, it has a present effect in us. It does something to us right now, but it also does something to us and for us later, ultimately, when we stand before the Lord. So wisdom's ultimate value is that it brings honor and success eventually while it has present benefits temporally. Let me show you. 
Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, uh, 12, 13 and 14 rather, uh, this is the crescendo of the book. And we have to reference this to give insight to what this is. But in the, in the crescendo of the book, he says, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is everything. This is why we live. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the role that wisdom plays. It helps us do this. And we do this in recognition that someday the Lord's going to bring every deed into judgment. We understand that everything that we do in this life is going to have a reflection and a reverberation in the next life. Therefore, wisdom is valuable because it helps us to fear the Lord and live in dependent humility upon him. This is its function and purpose. And then someday we can recognize glory and honor and peace for those of us who have exercised wisdom. John says, and John quoting Jesus says that the Father will honor those who have lived before him in humility and recognition. That servant is, right? Um, uh, that servanthood of, uh, of the believer, he's humbly living before the Lord under his sovereign rulership and reign, fearing him, chasing after what really is valuable. So therefore, wisdom does guarantee ultimate honor and success. That is the long-term view of wisdom. Wisdom has a long-term effect. Wisdom is good and valuable and right. But sometimes, maybe even many times, wisdom doesn't ripen on the vine here. Wisdom ripens there. All right, we need to understand then not only the value that wisdom ultimately has, but also how we actually get it then, because this is also significant. I want to point your attention to chapter 10. Look at these first four verses. I want to help you get a sense of what, where I, what I think is being highlighted here. Chapter 10, dead flies make the perfumer's ointments give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, I read this and I was scared. Uh, maybe you felt this too. Uh, essentially, Solomon says, you might have a pound of wisdom and honor, but an ounce of foolishness is gonna upset the whole batch. It really, an ounce of foolishness outweighs that, which in my mind, okay, that doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. Because as much as I desire to be wise and to honor the Lord of my life, I know, and maybe you know this too, that as hard as I try, I'm still frustrated by my, my often lack of wisdom, my foolishness. I'm, I'm frustrated by the fact that I still sin in ways and I'm like, man, I should be over this by now. Why am I still struggling with this? I'm frustrated that when I try to make a wise decision, I find out on the other side of the decision, oh man, I should have I done the other thing. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I do that? ounce of foolishness outweighs a pound of your wisdom and honor. That being the case, that seems to be upsetting and discouraging. And I want to address some of that. And I want to look at verse two to help, help, me, to help me explain this. Look at verse two. A wise man's heart, the internal driving compass of the person, his inner person inclines him to the right, but the fool's heart to the left. Now, this is not political commentary, okay? This is not meant to be understood Republican-Democrat. This is more like the, the polarity is divergent for each of these men. It's so opposite that it is clear black and white distinction. There is a divide between them that is no and no wise overlapping. The fool's heart leads him in a direction that goes the opposite of the Lord. The, the wise man's heart leads him to follow and love the Lord. Okay, that polarity, that north-south polarity here is meant to highlight for us the, the uh, contrast between the two. But I want you to notice what drives the polarity. Okay, let me read it to you again. A wise man's heart inclines him. A fool's heart inclines him, right? It's the heart that governs that polarity. 
And now, because it's the heart, look at verse three. Without understanding, verse three. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, maybe he's actually saying this to people, like, hey, I'm an, I'm an idiot, don't talk to me. Or maybe, or maybe it's just because of his very life. Who he is broadcasts what he is. Who he is, as a fool, cannot help but be, uh, be seen by people. And so when he speaks, it's clear he's a fool. When he acts, it's clear he's a fool. When he has affection for things, it's clear he's a fool. So foolishness is not merely what we do, but who we are. And that who we are is governed by the heart inside of us. That connection, I believe, is clear in Scripture. And again, we have to look at the broad brush of Scripture to see this, but I think it would be helpful for us as we pursue wisdom, how we pursue gaining wisdom. You may not know this, but... uh, Doritos were originally Disneyland's garbage. Doritos were actually born from a restaurant called Casa de Fritos. In the early 50s, when Disneyland opened, they had this restaurant for authentic Mexican food, and their tortilla supplier, Adam's Food, excuse me, Alex Foods, came one day to deliver their, their, their batch of tortillas, and the, the, the guy walks past the trash can and notices all of these, tor- uh, these you know, stale tortillas in the trash. He tells the cook, hey, cook, listen to this. You can save some money by not throwing these away, fry them, season them, and sell them. The cook says, that's a great idea. So he does that. Well, as he began doing this, people began to flock to Casa de Fritos in order to get some of these delicious chips. Now, these are not the same Frito chips, right? This is Fritos, this is Doritos. And then uh, Frito-Lay makes a stop by, an unexpected stop, and they realize how popular these chips are that everybody's eating. They find out, oh, you're making these out of the discarded tortilla chips that we're not using. Doritos was born. And of course, Doritos is still around today, and they're doing very well, thank you very much. But... Here's what you got to know from this. Doritos are a byproduct of Casa de Fritos trash. Wisdom is a byproduct of a heart devoted to the Lord. So I'm going to put it like this. Point number two, cultivate wisdom by, by the byproduct of pursuing heart change, being before the Lord with the kind of heart that pleases him and therefore causes you to grow in wisdom. Wisdom is the byproduct of a heart devoted to the Lord. And this is where I'm trying to get here. And I think these verses help uh, help clarify some of that. A wise, man heart, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right and a fool's heart to the left. I love this because it really brings the, the, the point home for us. If you're thinking about, well, I don't, want to make unfo- I don't want to make foolish decisions. I want to be wise before the Lord. Fantastic. So do I. We do that by pursuing a heart dedicated fully and completely to him. In the Ecclesiastes, I'm going to show you really quickly here, 2.15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Notice he's reasoning in his heart. He's thinking thoughts in his heart. Look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, sadness, sorrow. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, joy, gladness, celebration. And so now, not only do you have the heart thinking, you have the heart being directed at affection. Uh, the, the, the wise person's affection, his heart goes naturally to the things of, I want to take life seriously and be sober-minded. 10.2, and a heart, heart, uh, wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but fools to the left. You see an act of volition. The wise man's heart leads him to make decisions that are antithetical to the decisions of the fool. And so you see the heart operating in the book of Ecclesiastes as a thinking instrument, a feeling instrument, and a doing instrument. That's how we're going to break this down here. We're going to cultivate wisdom by pursuing heart change, first of all, in our cognition, the way that we think. We're going to think God's thoughts after him. 
I have it, let me read it to you. Proverbs 18, 15 says, an intelligent heart, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, okay? Uh, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. As we pursue the Lord our God, it is our purpose in life to know more of who he is. In fact, uh, it's John Calvin who said, uh, when we, the, the better we know ourselves, the better we can know God, and vice versa. The more we know about God, the more we can know of ourselves. Uh, the, the idea here is that our job in this life is to know so much of the Lord our God that it bleeds into our very person. There's so much in scripture about this. I, could, I, spend, I spend a lot of time with our high school students talking about this very thing because uh, what we think about, what occupies our mental space, what we cogitate on, what we meditate on has such an impact on who we are, the words we say, the actions we portray. This is so much of everything for us in our thoughts. And in fact, this is what the scriptures call in the New Testament, cultivating the mind of Christ, Colossians 3.16. Think about Romans 12, 1 and 2. Some of you have this memorized, right? Uh, Paul says that we are renewed in our mind, right? We're transformed by the renewal of our mind. That's Romans 12, verse 2. The whole point here is that scripture says that the wise person is first and foremost someone who wisely thinks God's thoughts after him and applies that to the whole world around himself. The whole goal of the Christian is to have his mind transformed by God's word. And this is what makes us wise. This is what produces and fosters the heart that is changed into the wisdom of God. Secondly, our affection. Psalm uh, chapter, uh, chapter one of the book of Psalm, this is the introduction to the Psalter. And of course, this is called a wisdom Psalm. Here's what this wisdom Psalm says in chapter, in chapter one, verses one and two. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. You might even say the counsel of the foolish. Nor stands in the way of sinners. He doesn't walk that direction, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his affection, his love is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So now you see the affection and the thinking paired together in, the first, in, the, in chapter one of the psalm. All this shows that a wise heart is produced by thinking God's thoughts after him, feeling God's affections with him. That is to say, we celebrate what God celebrates. We get excited about what excites God. We hate and despise what God hates and despises. In fact, love necessitates hate, right? If we love what God loves, we will hate what God hates, which means uh, our affections being wisely conformed to God's image means that we will hate sin and we will love righteousness. We will celebrate when good things happen. We will also be angry and dis, uh, not angry in a sinful sense, obviously, a righteous indignation when bad things happen, when sin prevails. This is what it looks like to have our lives conformed to the wise heart that scripture discusses. And of course, Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. His joy was to do what his father desired. Jesus also says that our job in this life is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. A guy by the name of Laszlo Polgar, you might have heard of him. He's a Hungarian man who thought, uh, I can raise geniuses. And he did this um, with, a, with a teacher that loved his idea so much that she was willing to marry him in order to have kids, in order to raise geniuses. And that's what he did. Laszlo Polgar had three daughters. And he decided that what he was going to do was teach each of those three daughters to love chess and to dominate the field. And you know what happened? They loved chess and they did dominate the field. In fact, there's some of the, I think uh, one of them became the highest ranking chess player in the world. 
All three of them became, became chess grandmasters, and they uh, did not merely have an intellectual appreciation, but what he did is he painted his entire house with pictures of famous chess players. He'd have books lying around, strategically placed all around the house with strategies and the beauty of the game. He went out of his way to set up his entire domain where he lived to reflect the fact that their highest value and affection was for the game of chess. And so his daughters, being raised in this environment, began to love it and be immersed in it. And they studied it. And in fact, he homeschooled for the very purpose of during any other time when they could tie the subject into chess, he would do that. He formed their entire existence around the game of chess. And it worked. They became the highest ranking chess players in their field. They dominated. And these young ladies would go into these chess clubs and they would crush their older gentleman counterparts. They were phenomenal. These girls loved the game so much, he caught one of his daughters, his youngest daughter, in the bathroom, middle of the night, playing chess. And he said, Sophia, leave the chess pieces alone. And she said, Father, I can't. They won't leave me alone. Her, her entire world was obsessed with chess. I hope you can see some of the picture I'm trying to paint here. What is your life, your heart obsessed about? What occupies its heart space? What gives you that sense of excitement? What brings joy in your life? Like Laszlo Polgar, maybe we need to set up our entire lives around being obsessed about the right things. Not Fox News, not CNN, not about politics. Lord knows that's not good for our blood pressure. Not about the things that the world uh, gets upset about. We need to be obsessed about the thing that matters most and to build that in our affection, to let our thoughts gravitate toward that, to let our feelings revolve around that and to have a truly wise heart. Our cognition, our affection, and in our volition. This is the most obvious one, learning to make decisions that are wise decisions. And this really... Um, is revealed, your heart is revealed in the loyalties that you possess on a daily basis. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you're the kind of guy that wakes up in the morning to get his daily exercise in, if you're the kind of guy who maybe has family devotions, read the Bible with your kids at night, uh, or maybe the music that you listen to, you have a go-to playlist when you're driving, you have a go-to playlist when you're working out, What's the music say? What kind of shows are you apt to watch? Uh, what shows are you committed to to say, when it comes out, I want to watch it. And if there's a new season out, I want, if, I can, if I can, I want to binge it. Uh, what are your commitments in the books that you read? If there's a certain author that you, by and large, will always listen to, what kind of book is that? And is that feeding your soul? Uh, really, the question is not if it's feeding your soul. It is feeding your soul. It's making an impression. We all know that. But the question then is, what does my heart loyalty reveal about me? When I'm committed to do certain actions and to attend certain events or to listen to certain music or to read certain news articles, what does that reveal about my heart? And the point I'm making here is that if we're pursuing a wise heart, or excuse me, if we're pursuing wisdom by a heart change, we need to make sure that our highest commitment and values are on the things that God say are, are should be our highest commitments and values. In Joshua 24, he says, look, uh, you decide what you guys are going to do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've chosen to stake our claim on this truth that the Lord is God and we will follow him no matter what. Cognition, affection, volition, thinking, feeling, and your doing. These are the areas to pursue change if you want a wise heart. Because again, the fool is not merely what he does. It is who he is. He couldn't help but broadcast that. It's his heart that inclines him to the wrong direction. And the same is true for the wise man. What's occupying your thoughts? What's occupying your affection? What's occupying your volition? If you're wise and you want to pursue a wise heart, we need to yield all of those things underneath the banner of Scripture. Wisdom is more than making good decisions, but it's not less than that. And despite the unpredictability of the outcomes, 
it's still better than folly. With all that said, that's all preface. Let's work through some of these uh, Proverbs that Solomon writes for us in this last section here, 8 through 20. I guess I can give you the point before we jump into that. I want to, now that we have an understanding of what wisdom does and doesn't do, and now that we understand that wisdom comes from a wise heart, I want us all now to apply practical wisdom with humility and fear. Humility and fear because we, we understand that wisdom doesn't guarantee certain outcomes, so there's a sense of humility of, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do, but I know that's not going to result necessarily in all the things that I desired of life. Fear in that, this is Ecclesiastes 12. This is the crescendo of the book. It says, look, fear the Lord your God. This is the whole, end of, this is the whole matter of life. This is what your existence is about. And so I want to fear the Lord in my decisions, and I want to have humility in my decisions. These two things together, paired, give me the ability to practic- apply practical wisdom and to be somewhat safe in that application. When I took my kids to the batting cages, uh, I, got, I got a little cocky, <laughs> and I, I went to a, a really fast speed. And I guess what's really fast, I think it was 70 miles an hour, a 70 mile per hour speed, and it's all strikes, right? They're just, it's all strikes, so it's pretty easy to hit. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> so I took a couple swings, and I, okay, my mechanics are off, my, my swing doesn't look good, but you know, no, I'm staying in here until I, until I make contact. And so I finally, I swing it, I hit the ball, and I was in the worst pain of my life. I hit it, my, my, my hands felt like they were on fire. I'd never experienced this before in my life. I, I, I hit the ball and I thought, that, that, that's terrible. If this is what baseball players do, no wonder they make a million dollars because this is terrible, this hurts. And I came to find out that uh, bats have a sweet spot. There's about a two-inch spot on the barrel where if you hit it in the right spot, you get maximum power and minimal to no sting, no, no pain in your hands. I apparently did not hit it there, and that's why I had all this pain. Well, the sweet spot in the Christian life is humility and fear. When you're taking a swing with the bat of wisdom, hit it with humility and fear. Because here's the beauty of this. When you hit that with humility and fear in that sweet spot on the barrel, you might hit a home run. The Lord might make it go over the fences, or you might hit a grounder to first and get out at first base. I mean, it, uh, the Lord determines where the ball goes, essentially. And I, again, in, a, in reality, baseball, you get to choose where you hit. I get all that. But the point I want to make is that humility and fear is a sweet spot. And when you hit it with that, that allows wisdom to soar wherever the Lord desires. And if he wants to get you out at first, you're out at first. If you hit a home run and you're majorly successful in this life, fantastic. That's that's good. But we apply wisdom with these twin virtues in mind, humility and fear. Let's talk about a few of these themes in chapter 10. Uh, first of all, we apply practical wisdom hum- with humility and fear in our work. Uh, of course, he says here in, a, uh, in, in verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and the serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. In the sense, Solomon acknowledges that even in all of our work, whether it's nefarious or noble, our work has inherent dangers baked into it. And sometimes those dangers manifest themselves in us being injured on the job. You know, you get carpal tunnel because you type on the computer all day. You have a neck strain because your neck's always twisting in an awkward position. You have back pain because you're the kind of guy who's in construction. You work with your hands and you're, you're, you're on your feet all day. And so you have calluses and corns and arthritis because of this, that, and the other. Solomon acknowledges this. Look, what you do is going to have a result in your life. And he's acknowledging that sometimes those results aren't going to be a good thing. Nevertheless, verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. In other words, think about your work. Do, do it wisely and do it humbly before the Lord. Be thoughtful about what you do. Humility and fear. Humility, of course, always acknowledges that the only reason you're here today is because the Lord wills for your heart to live. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2 says, if the, unless the Lord builds a house, 
uh, those who build it labor in vain. That is to say, unless you are clear about the Lord being at work in your work, then you are laboring effectively in vanity. The same word that, that, that Solomon uses. We must acknowledge that our work is a work of devotion, a work of worship unto the Lord. Everything we do, lawyering, uh, doctoring, nursing, whatever we're doing, all of our labors are meant to be done in and through and for the Lord, recognizing his hand providentially upon all of it. Humility. For some of us, that might mean that, oh man, if that, that, that's really the case, I don't want to necessarily work as hard as I need to. The Lord's going to determine the, the, the toss of the dice anyway. What does it matter? And of course, the Lord would tell us, no, uh, providence does not excuse laziness. Proverbs 6, 6 says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Our work is done with humility and fear. Humility, understanding that the Lord is the one who makes it possible for me to make money. Fear, I want to work hard and give my best to the Lord. Some pastor, I don't know who said it first, but someone once said, pray as if everything depends upon you, work as if everything depends upon God. And I said that the opposite, didn't I? Pray as if everything depends upon God, work as if everything depends upon you. We edit that last line out. Um, you get my point. Uh, and part of, that, part of that truism, it makes me uncomfortable. Work as if everything depends upon you. Uh, but the point remains, we work hard, but we also pray hard. We give our best and we pray our best. We diligently labor and yet we diligently trust. This is what it looks like to apply practical wisdom in our work. But also let us be wise and apply humility and fear to practical wisdom in our words. Um, I love how scripture, scripture has a lot to say about our words, but as a Christian under the New Testament covenant, Ephesians 4.29 is our marching orders. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This does not mean that we can never bring up neg neg negative things, criticisms, or uh, we can't call out evil. This is not what this verse is saying, but scripture is saying that in the, under the new covenant, Christians have their mouths governed by God's grace. We recognize that even in our speaking, our job is to convey grace to the people who hear our words. Grace has multiple functions. Grace is not only, I want to make you feel good. Grace also trains. Grace also exhorts. Grace also rebukes. So the point is not that we don't say negative words, but that all of our words are governed and managed by God's grace, his word, his spirit in and through us. We must have humility and understanding that we should give great weight and thought to our words. Why? Because God does. Here's where the fear part comes in. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That ought to send a chill down your spine. And it does me as someone who speaks for a living. Uh, I preach and this is my job. And I recognize that scripture gives me a higher bar, but that's true for all of us. Granted, all of our sin has been washed away by the blood of Christ. We're thankful for that. God's given us grace upon grace. We can never out-sin God's, uh, God's grace in our lives. Thank you for that, Jesus. We're so grateful. Nevertheless, Romans 6, shall we, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Therefore, let us guard our lips. You saw this back in Ecclesiastes chapter five where he says, look, don't be hasty with what you say to God. Guard, he says, let your words be few. Our lips and our mouths can be, can, be the, can be the medium of a lot of sin in our lives and it can have reverberating effects. Like when you throw a rock into a pond, those ripples extend further and further out and sometimes sin has the same effect in people's lives. You might've said something quick and spiteful to your son or daughter or your wife, not even really thinking about it, but she felt that and that lingered for her. Your kids feel that and that sticks with them. Your coworkers, when, they hear, when you said that thing to your coworker and for you, it's like, I'm gonna get him out of your hair. He felt that. 
Might not tell you, but he felt that. Our words are powerful, and Scripture continually repeats this refrain. So let us be uh, wise by learning to tame our tongues and submit them to the kingship of Jesus. What does he want you to say? What does he want you not to say? Well, let us be the kind of men who are wise enough to follow those marching orders. Let us be wise then in our working, in our speaking, and in, of course, our leadership. Whether you're a leader of a family, a business, whether you're a leader of a team, you know, a little league team or what have you. Leadership is meant to be wielded uh, for one very specific purpose. And let me use Jesus as our example here. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ephesians chapter five, if you're a husband, Jesus, uh, through the pen of the apostle Paul, elaborates on this. Your job in this life is to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. That's the idea of leadership. Authority then is given not for self-indulgence, but for self-sacrifice, for service to other people. So whether you're a boss or a manager or you just have leadership in a family or your leadership is relatively minor, recognize that every ounce of leadership God gives you is meant to be yielded for the good of the other. And of course, the danger for all of us is that we're naturally selfish. We want to wield our leadership for self-serving purposes. I want the best parking spot. I want the nicest office. I want the, the nicest equipment. And I deserve this because I'm the leader. And granted, some of those, those you know, pleasantries, those privileges are fine to have. But when they become tools of our self-satisfaction as opposed to tools of self-service to others or self-sacrifice for others, that's when they become uh, unhelpful. That's when they become uh, sinful even. Look at verses 16 and 17 in chapter 10. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. He's unwise, he's foolish. And your princes feast in the morning. They have no restraint. They're feasting at the wrong time. They're doing things at the wrong, the wrong time with no physical restraint. However, verse 17, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. And your princes feast at the proper time. They do it for strength and not for drunkenness. That is, you know, those who lead well are the kind of people who are doing it for the right reasons at the right time. There is great wisdom in their exercise of their leadership. They understand there's a time to eat and a time to be hungry. And if we go back to chapter, uh, chapter seven, we recognize there's a time for everything, right? Wisdom understands the value of time. And so in your leadership, you are exercising your leadership in such a way where you are trying to do the right thing at the right time, submitting it to the Lord in order to say, I wanna serve others. I wanna be a useful tool in your hands, Father. Make me a great leader for your sake. Pour me out. Help me to sacrifice for others. And of course, the fear aspect of this, Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. If you have just a little bit of leadership, there's still an accountability for you that the Lord will hold you to. A lot of leadership is greater accountability. What you say, what you do, the kind of example you set for the people that, uh, that report to you, all of these things matter to the Lord. They're all a stewardship. They're all a gift from him. And he expects us to exercise practical wisdom in these arenas. Wisdom's greatest value is that it is eternally minded. It has temporary impacts that are positive, sometimes, maybe most times, and sometimes not. But its greatest value is future and eternal. We cultivate wisdom not by doing the right things, but by cultivating the right heart before the Lord. And then when we finally have the opportunity to apply those those, those wisdom virtues. We do that with the recognition that we're hitting it on the sweet spot, humility and fear. I'm not putting a coin into the slot machine and pulling the handle and getting a jackpot every time. Sometimes the Lord makes it do something different. And we recognize that even in those things, God is still sovereign and the king is still on the throne. And even though sometimes it may seem like the wicked prosper, 
It seems like uh, you know, the, the sinner is beating the house, so to speak. God, who is the owner of the house, <laughs> the, the house always wins. God never loses. Temporarily, things might seem to be reversed. Temporarily, uh, it might seem like wickedness is prevailing. You know, the media channels, social media is being monopolized by a certain group of people and everything around us seems to be crumbling. Well, what do Christians do in this place? We humbly serve and submit to the Lord. Look, some of us will be paralyzed by indecision. Should I send my daughter to UCSB or USC? Should I, uh, should I take this job over here in this place or take this job over here in that place? When this one's got this particular package, this one's got that package, uh, I wanna make sure that I take care of my wife and so should I get this insurance policy or that? I mean, there's, there's some really tough decisions that confront all of us. Here's what wisdom does. Wisdom, taking the full counsel of God, and this is why daily exposure and, and intake is so important. It takes the full counsel of God, submits it to him, says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Get counsel, make a wise decision, close your eyes and go to bed at night. Sleep with a clear conscience. This is what wisdom allows us to do. And whatever the consequences are, positive or negative, we take them as, as they come. The Lord's in control of those things and we're okay with that. True wisdom is cultivated inside, out, submits to the Lord's humility and fear. And the value is that it teaches me to live in dependent humility and in fear of the Lord. This is what it's about. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for that simple words of your scripture. I pray, please, Lord, that the, this sermon would provide ample fodder for good conversation in, uh, in the men's small groups this morning. Please prepare them to go off to a working day, to apply wisdom. Lord, more importantly, to cultivate a wise heart that willingly submits to you and even that inclines to you naturally or rather supernaturally because of your spirit. Help us to be wise men who please you. And in the last day, Lord, that you can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, for this is what we desire. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.